Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Drug Delivery West Conference on the topic of ophthalmology and exploring other routes of administration. This session is led by Dr. James Cunningham, Executive Director of Drug Delivery at Allergan. He is joined by Dr. James Chastin of Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, along with Dr. Susie Crowell of Genentech and Dr. Viral Kansara of Clearside Bio. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Great. So I'm joined on the stage here by uh, three panelists uh, who I will introduce uh, here uh, in order. So we have uh, Jim Chastain, uh, who is uh, Executive Director of PK Sciences in Ophthalmology at the Novartis Institutes for, uh, for Biomedical Research. Uh, we have Viral Kansara, who is VP of uh, Product of Discovery at Clearside Bio. And lastly, Susie Kroll, uh, who's Scientist in Preclinical tra and Translational PKPD at Genentech. Uh, and so the title of our panel session today is uh, Exploring Other Routes of Administration. And I think that really begs the question of what do we mean by that, other relative to what? Uh, and so as we were preparing for this session and talking about where we wanted to focus, rather than having a very broad discussion on delivery to all parts of the eye, we thought perhaps we would focus on delivery to the posterior segment or the back of the eye uh, as an area of particular unmet need. Uh, and so, um, you know, diseases of the, of the retina, uh, again, are a huge unmet need. Uh, tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone suffer from diseases like age-related macular degeneration or AMD, diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema, and others. Um, I think everybody's familiar with the, the global demographic trends towards uh, aging populations. These are diseases that really afflict us mainly later in life, and so I think the treatment burden is only going to increase uh, over time. Um, fortunately, we do have effective drugs to treat many of these conditions. For example, neovascular uh, AMD, currently the standard of care is protein therapeutics, such as uh, Lucentis and Ilea, that are injected intravitreally uh, into the eye using a hypodermic needle. Um, this is routine. You know, millions of these injections are done each year in the U.S. alone. Um, you know, of course, it's invasive. None of us, I don't think, relish the idea of an intraocular injection. Um, there are risks associated with the procedure, although uh, you know, at relatively uh, low levels. Um, and you know, I think most importantly, the treatment burden, both on patients as well as on the providers that administer these injections, is really tremendous. And so having alternatives would be great. Hence. The other that we're referring to here is you know, really anything other than intravitreal, conventional intravitreal injection uh, as uh, our, uh, our area of focus. Um, and so before we dive in, I thought perhaps we could advance to the next slide. Um, I wanted to put uh, on screen here, uh, we've got a couple of diagrams that just illustrate some of the anatomy of the eye as well as barriers for folks in the room that uh, aren't uh, as familiar with this area. Um, and so Susie, I'd like to start with you. Um, you know, when we talk about drug delivery to the back of the eye, to where specifically are we trying to get the drug? Yeah, so in this um, disease space that we're focused on, we're really talking about trying to get the drug into the retina or at least to modulate the disease that's occurring in the retina um, within the context of anti-VEGF therapeutics. Uh, VEGF is um, produced within the retina and, and choroid, and um, 
there's actually quite a bit of debate in the field about whether you need to get your anti-VEGF therapeutic into the retina or whether it's sufficient to have a very high concentration of it in the vitreous um, to kind of draw out the uh, VEGF target. Um, and that's one of the unsolved mysteries in this field. I think that um, there are many different um, therapeutic approaches here um, in terms of drug delivery. You can do something like conjugate a drug to make it larger, for instance, to, to help it stay in the eye longer. Um, but there's, there's a lot of debate about whether that would reduce the penetration into the retina. Um, and ultimately, that's something that you can really only answer clinically. Um, and, and nobody's going to purposefully make something that doesn't penetrate the retina and, until there's some kind of evidence um, that it doesn't matter. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 there. Um, there's also a lot of debate getting, um, I think it was Dr. Granger was mentioning the animal models that we're using here. Um, when we're starting to, or, or trying to understand these things, the healthy young eyes of monkeys and rabbits, um, how, how well do those recapitulate the disease population that we're talking about, whether their barriers are intact. Um, you can see a lot of the barriers in the eye in the diagram here, and um, th those are altered in the disease state. So um, yeah, we are ultimately trying to get things into the retina um, or near the retina, and uh, that, that is really the space that we're interested in here. And can you comment at all about some of the new mechanisms of action that are under study? Is the, is the, the, the same generally true uh, with some of those newer, you know, for example, targeting the complement pathway? Mm -hmm. um, and in many of the complements actually really interesting. Um, so generally, yes, we're still trying to affect um, you know, our, our therapeutic mechanism of action within the retina. Although there are, um, I, I was just at uh, Arvo last week, the ocular conference, um, and there's a lot of um, interest right now in can we treat some of these um, diabetic-associated eye diseases systemically? Um, can we, you know, a, a address inflammation and um, vascular issues systemically and have that impact the retina as well? Um, and I think that is an exciting idea. It would be very disruptive um, to the ocular drug delivery space um, if we were able to get an oral small molecule therapeutic um, that, that addresses these issues. But... Um, I think it remains to be seen. For, for a complement, um, some of those targets are generated systemically as well as in the retina. Um, but you know, ultimately, it's still about trying to get as much drug as possible, as close as possible to the retina, and keep it there. So. Great. Great. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that. And Jim, maybe I can turn to you. Um, you know, why is it necessary to inject many of these drugs right now? And what makes it so difficult? Can you describe some of the key barriers that we have to surmount to get drugs into the eye by other means? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you look at this diagram, you can see that uh, um, the, you, you start on the left side there. It's, that's the cornea, which is the clear part of the eye. If you look in the mirror, that's what you see. And so it, we have to get drugs to the very back of the eye, which is the, what has been mentioned as the retina. Now, the retina, you know, kind of forms sort of a cup at the back of the eye. But the most important part of the retina is called the macula. And that's, that's the area that uh, I can't see it quite here, but it's sort of next to the optic nerve, that, that stem that comes off the back of the eye. So uh, one approach that people have taken is, is, is or thought that would be sort of the holy grail is to use eye drops. So many of you have probably used eye drops. So if you put an eye drop in the eye, it's very easy to do, although 
it, it's not without its without its problems. Um, and uh, one would hope you could get drugged to the back, very back of the eye. That turns out to be quite difficult because there's quite a bit of distance between. It's about maybe about 20 centimeters for a drug to diffuse from the front of the eye to the back of the eye. As a result of that, uh, the best way that's been found to administer a drug to reach the, the back of the eye, reach the retina, is just to inject it into the eye, into this uh, center portion, which is the vitreous. It's sort of a gel, gel uh, substance. Uh, it changes over time as you age, as you get older, it becomes more liquid. But, but you inject it into that center portion and then the drug can diffuse to the back of the eye. It also diffuses to the front of the eye, but it's, it's a very effective way to get drug to the retina. Um, and then, you know, that's where we've ended up with drugs being injected intravitreally um, as opposed to other pathways. However, that said, people are, companies are still looking at topical. There's been very mixed success there. There's been a variety of failures. Um, uh, I only know of one compound being tested in the clinic that has shown efficacy and still going. Um, and and uh, there are, the problem with intravitreal, and this is probably, you, others can speak to this as well, is that uh, currently, current therapy with Lucentis, uh, which is one of the standards of care, that, that has to be given every month, an intravitreal injection every month, although some patients can go longer than that, maybe two months or, or longer. Uh, ILEA is every two months by its label, but there's some evidence that that could, could be administered uh, over a lo longer period of time. Uh, and there are, So there has to be some drug delivery strategies to extend that release. That, the bar keeps being raised, as, as we know. At one point, it was, okay, we're giving the drug every, every month. It's highly effective, very effective for, for treating AMD, treating the edema, reducing that in the retina, and improving the vision of patients. Um, but, but now, at that point, it was every month. Then ILEA made it every two months. Now, the bar needs one, the next bar was every three months. Currently, I think the thought is we need every six-month therapy or longer. Um, and it'd be great to go one and done if we could. That would be the, I, I guess I'm calling it the, the holiest, uh, holy grail. Uh, that would be sort of a gene therapy, uh, perhaps. We don't know. Um, but anyway, I hope that that's kind of... I'm rambling on here about, now we could talk forever about this, but no, no, that's, it, it's, that's kind of gives you the, the sense of the challenges that we're, we're up against. Great. No, thanks, Jim. Yeah, so I, I think you know, that's a great segue. Um, you know, the concept of maximizing the duration of effect, you know, if we have to inject intravitreally, let's do it as infrequently as possible. You know, Susie, coming back to you, what are the strategies, some of the strategies that you think are most compelling right now in that space? Um, I think that the, the one that I, everybody will expect me to say, obviously, is uh, the, the port delivery system that um, Genentech has in, uh, I guess we just completed phase two on that. We have phase three ongoing. It's actually a, a, a device that's surgically implanted into the eye, and it just 
releases drug um, very slowly, and it, it will hopefully get us to that six months based on the, the phase two data. Um, that's very exciting. It's a game changer, but it's still a surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. So um, back to the holy grail, of course, eye drops would be wonderful. Um, but in lieu of that, if we can get an injection that you're you know, able to get in your doctor's office once, once every six months, once a year, that would be fantastic. Um, and what are the strategies we can use to get there? Um, one of the ones that's been explored quite heavily lately is uh, conjugating your therapeutic to something bigger. So PK in the eye is driven almost entirely by diffusion. The vitreous, the jelly in the back, is largely stagnant. There's not a lot of flow. Um, so whereas for large molecules, we're typically considering convection as one of the primary drivers of PK there, it's not a huge factor. Um, so you make something bigger, it's going to stick around longer. Uh, then you get back to the question of retinal distribution, though. So if you make it big, does it still get where it needs to go? Um, that's an unanswered question. So um, There are other uh, clinical, um, clinically used approaches, such as uh, for Ozerdex, um, dexamethasone in a PLGA implant. So that's a little you know, polymer depot that gets injected into your eye. Um, and those work pretty well, but they're, you know, as those are potentially being applied to other kinds of therapeutics, large molecule or small molecule, there's a lot of questions around what would be tolerable for patients. Um, if you can imagine having something floating in your eye, um, if anybody's actually experienced that, it's really irritating. <laughs> um, and, and that's a huge question when you're talking about depots in that space. Um, it's a really interesting uh, tissue to be delivering things to because it is such a part of our daily lives um, that uh, you, have, you have a lot of constraints that you don't have to consider um, for a lot of the other delivery spaces, I think, like sub-Q and so forth. It's not as big a deal. So. Yep. Great, thank you. And so you mentioned the port delivery system, uh, which is focused on delivering a biologic. Mm -hmm. There's other strategies that others are pursuing to do sustained release of small molecules. There's different, I think, challenges and risk profiles around mm -hmm. both of those. And any thoughts about sort of, you know, um, how those trade-offs compare, you know, particular challenges with sustain doing sustained release of a biologic? I have lots. <laughs> um, um, I think that small molecule versus large molecule in the eye. Um, small molecule, it's uh, harder to keep it there. Um, something like the port delivery system could conceivably be used with a variety of therapeutics, um, but it's all about trying to you know, get that PK profile that you want without causing tox problems. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think we'll see where that goes. For large molecules, uh, we run into a lot of issues around um, maximum feasible dose. How do you concentrate something um, enough? How do you get enough drug into a tiny space? When we're talking about intravitreal injections, we're limited to volumes of 50 to 100 microliters for your dose. Um, and if you're trying to pack in six months worth of therapeutic into that space, it's pretty hard. Um, we're also super limited on the uh, you know formulation factors that we can use. Um, one of my one of my tox friends the other day said, you know. In systemic tox, there's this whole list of things that we know are safe because people accidentally eat them or accidentally stab themselves with it, and you, you get case studies over time, right? Nobody accidentally puts anything in their eye, um, it turns out, not all the way in, at least. <laughs> so uh, we have a much more limited understanding of what we can use to um, safely formulate. Um, it's very limited, but super fun. <laughs> so. 
Maybe shifting gears a little bit from longer acting to less invasive, um, you know, rather than delivering through the entire globe of the eye into the vitreous, um, you know, Viral, your company, ClearSide, is I think really leading the way uh, with a, a new route of administration, uh, which is supracoroidal administration using microneedles. And so, can you tell us a little bit about that um, and some of the key advantages and challenges? Absolutely. <clears throat> Thank you, Jim. Uh, first of all, let me uh, let me thank you and the meeting organizer for uh, putting this together and uh, all the people who helped to put this together. Uh, it is really an exciting time right now in the ocular delivery space specifically. Uh, I guess uh, the advancement in the innovation and the, and the growth that we have seen in the field in the last five years is more than what we have seen in the last 50 years. Uh, having said that, I, there are a lot of challenges, as, uh, as Jim mentioned here and uh, Susie uh, alluded to. A number of uh, static and dynamic uh, and physiological barriers that uh, any drug has to cross in order to reach to the site of action. So keeping all those factors in mind, uh, a team of scientists at ClearSide Biomedical, uh, they came up with this very unique approach, which is supracoroidal delivery. Relatively, it is not less invasive as compared to standard of care, which is uh, injecting throughout uh, into the middle of the eye, uh, where you have to penetrate, as you can see in the diagram, uh, all four or five different layers to get to the mid-vitreous level. The idea of supracoroidal injection is to just enter the outer portion of the eye, which is, uh, which is sclera, that is highlighted with the blue color in this diagram, and deliver drug just underneath the sclera. And there are a couple of advantages, key advantages doing that. Number one, you... Uh, to, uh, from the get-go, you avoid some of the barriers. You avoid conjunctival uh, and scleral physical barrier, as well as some of the lymphatic blood and uh, systemic blood flow in the episcleral space. And the way you put it, the drug in the supracoroidal space uh, is that you are right at the site of action for the, uh, for the most part. Uh, neovascular AMD is it's a choroidal neovascularization, so new blood vessels grow in the choroidal space, and then it breaks uh, uh, through the Brooks membrane and get into the retina. So putting drug right at uh, just on top of choroid is it, it's very much close to uh, the site of action. So that was one direct advantage. It's a targeted delivery. Number two, it also compartmentalizes your drug right to the back of the eye. Uh, because of the unique anatomy, drug stays after injection to the back of the eye. As Jim mentioned, once, when we inject intravitreally, drug diffuses throughout the globe. Uh, it goes to the front of the eye and back of the eye. Uh, here with supracoroidal injection, you are going to keep the drug right to the back of the eye. So. Uh, that is very unique advantage, especially in case of steroid, I guess. Uh, one of the key side effects uh, of steroid is uh, intraocular pressure increase and uh, cataract or uh, glaucoma cases. Uh, by delivering steroid supracoroidally, you are going to keep the exposure of drug 
in the front of the eye very limited. Uh, the company has shown that clinically uh, that uh, the, the incidence of the side effect of steroid is drastically reduced when you deliver it uh, through supracoroidal approach. And we came up with the term saying uh, we are delivering uh, responsible steroid. <laughs> uh, so, so that's another advantage of going uh, uh, through, uh, through supracoroidal approach. Um, and there are a number of advancements. Uh, gene therapy is another approach that we can touch upon later on. Okay, thank you. We'll get to topical delivery next. Before we go there, are there any other, you know, sort of, uh, let's call them less invasive routes that anybody wants to, to share? There's, you know, certainly literature that spans many decades on, you know, subconjunctival, subtenons, you know, delivery. Uh, anything exciting going on there? I can talk about uh, a failure. Um, uh, sometimes that's a good lesson learned. We learned from uh, And this was... Uh, uh, what we called a, a, just, a, a posterior juxtascleral delivery. That is, uh, this was an approach that uh, when I was at Alcon, we took several years ago, many years ago. It was interesting because about uh, 20 years ago, intravitreal administration was, uh, was not considered a, uh, was, was sort of shunned by the ophthalmologist. It, it was thought it would be, you would cause endophthalmitis. Endophthalmitis is an inflammatory response inside the eye and in the vitreous, which uh, can result in loss of vision. So physicians were very concerned about making intravitreal injections. What, what happened was that uh, that's progressed, and nowadays it's a very routine procedure. It's done quite safely with, with of course, it's not risk-free, as was mentioned. But uh, just real briefly, this, this was a procedure where the, the drug was injected around the globe of the eye, not inside, at the back of the eye, over the macula, so the very back of the eye, and then the drug was allowed to diffuse through the, through the uh, sclera directly to the, to the macula of the, of the retina. What this turned out in the end did not work in the clinic. Uh, that could have been just because we weren't giving it more frequently than it needed to be, or, or not enough drug was reaching the, the retina. But the, I think in terms of that route, we can take it off the table because nobody else, I don't think, is, is really looking at that. The other thing is with these kind of, these kind of uh, around-the-eye administrations, you sometimes get scarring which is, makes it more difficult, repeated administrations. So that's one of them. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about topical delivery. But, yeah, well. let's talk about talk, topical delivery. You know, the, the holy grail, maybe not the holy holy grail of uh, systemic oral, but uh, yeah. uh, you, know, you described the, the barriers before, and you know, they certainly seem insurmountable. There have been decades of research in this space. Is there reason to be optimistic that we'll get there in your opinion, with uh, topical delivery to the back of the eye, um, it, it depends on which day you know you're, which day you're, you're talking about. Because from day to day, we get different uh, bits of data uh, and levels of enthusiasm. So I kind of view this as uh, sort of the East-West passage. You know, if you recall your history, uh, there was a lot of effort that went into trying to find East-West a, a passage, a, a water passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Uh, I mean, a lot of effort. 
eventually we built canals, but we had to build one in Panama, so quite a bit south. <laughs> but there was no east-west passage. There was no way to get from the uh, Atlantic to the Pacific. It just didn't exist. Um, so that may be the case here, um, but, but there is a lot of effort going into this. So there are, are a few drugs, a few compounds that do reach the back of the eye uh, from the topical route, from an eye drop. And it's basically a handful, maybe a couple of handfuls of, of drugs, but the, mainly that's data from preclinical models. The problem with these preclinical models is that they're in smaller species. A, a lot of the, uh, I think you've, you've written an article recently from your group that kind of reviewed the, the, the problems with these preclinical models. In terms of the pharmacodynamics, the pharmacology, a lot of these are in rats or mice, and the anatomy of the, the eye and the, the dimension of the eye is much smaller eye, so you can have diffusional processes that are important in a small eye that don't translate to the human eye, which is much larger. Um, some of the, more and more, there, there are models in, in uh, pharmacodynamic models in, in rabbits, which is a larger eye, it's, uh, and monkeys. But the monkey eye is still about half the size of the human eye. So translatability is, is an issue, and it has been. I mean, there's been a lot of enthusiasm with compounds reaching the back of the eye in clinical models. They've shown efficacy in the pharmacodynamic models. You go to the clinic, it, it's safe, it, you know, but then you, then you do your phase two, your proof of concept, and it fails. Uh, there's one compound, it's... Uh, I think it's a panoptica uh, compound that, uh, that is still moving along in phase one, two. They had to reformulate, and this kind of illustrates some of the issues with uh, uh, topical ocular drugs, is that one, for one, you have to create a very large gradient between the front and the back of the eye to get enough drug to the back of the eye. You have to have a very potent drug, otherwise, the small amount that gets to the back of the eye is not, not going to cut it. Mm -hmm. So typically, when you apply a topical ocular drug to the, to the eye, only about, you know, typically 1% to 2% gets absorbed into the eye. There are, in some, there are some cases where it's up to 10%. But let's say it's 1%. And of that 1%, maybe only in the best case, maybe 10% gets to the back of the eye. So we're looking at 0.1% of, of a dose that you've applied to the eye. So the gradient is quite large. So you're putting a boatload of drug on the front of the eye, the cornea, and you don't want to damage the cornea because when you damage the cornea, <laughs> you, it, it will turn cloudy and you'll lose your vision. You'll go blind and you may need a corneal transplant. We, you obviously don't want that. So we're always very concerned about applying drugs to the, to the front of the eye to get drugs to the back of the eye for that very reason. So you trade one problem for another. That's not, that's not necessarily good. Um, so there, uh, this is quite challenging. There, we don't quite understand how drugs get to the back of the eye, those that do. Uh, there is probably the most likely route uh, is through a suprachoroidal pathway. That's been shown uh, preclinically. Um, it could also be a periocular route. It's just not really clearly understood. This and then is once a pessimistic it gets back day. there, 
I'm sorry. I said it's a pessimistic day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm the you. pessimist today. Sorry. Um, but I, I mean, we need to we need to clear away, you know, the you know the the stuff that's not working, so that we can focus on the stuff that's going to work. Absolutely. Uh, and focus our efforts there. Um, so, so just just uh, just to wrap up here is that there are a few drugs that do reach the back of the eye, but it's dwindling down in, in the number of companies that are really interested in this because they've tried it, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of enthusiasm to go back and try it again. In fact, there's probably not a lot of uh, enthusiasm in even understanding why it didn't work. Uh, usually it's ascribed to the drug didn't reach the back of the eye. Um, it's, we, it's usually not, well, the pharmacology wasn't right. Well, it's usually, well, we think the pharmacology was right. It just didn't reach the back of the eye. So um, this is why we continue to look at the intravitreal route, the suprachoroidal routes, uh, these other, other means of uh, reaching the back of the eye. So, so any, any reason to be optimistic, um, you know, Viral or Susie? Uh, you know, certainly things like cell-penetrating peptides, iontophoresis, you tend to see still a lot of literature about these types of things. Will, will they get us there? That's right. I guess a uh, uh, number of different things uh, have been tried, and uh, uh, I think we should continue trying uh, all those options. Uh, we heard the talk uh, uh, some time back about the ultrasound, right? And I have tried uh, that uh, for the topical delivery as well uh, with some success. And you could also apply ultrasound to the scleral side of the eyeball and get through the, 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 some of the physical barriers. Uh, uh, haven't done uh, clinical trials, but in preclinical model, uh, I was able, able to show uh, that uh, the penetration is better, the type of data that we have seen here. So yes, there are a lot of opportunities, I guess, Unless and until we try, we would never know. Iontophoresis uh, is, is another concept, right, uh, for delivering uh, to, the back, uh, to the back of the eye using front of the eye. Uh, Cell-penetrating peptide uh, did not work very well in my hand, so uh, I, I do not know if anyone else uh, had success with cell-penetrating peptides. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and therefore, I guess it's important, uh, if you go to the next slide, there are various different routes that people uh, and uh, various uh, uh, scientists have tried. And you could see on this slide that almost every layer of the eye uh, have been tried uh, to deliver drug, uh, starting from the, the most outer layer, uh, 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 the layer sclera to uh, even conjunctiva to sclera to choroid to RPE and then retina, and all the way into the vitreous humor. Uh, number of advancements are uh, happening at this point, and that's where I say it's really exciting time uh, to be in the field right now. Uh, the RPDS, the, the port delivery system is one of the examples, I guess. Uh, it's a beautiful delivery system, and you get six months of delivery with the single injection or even longer. Mm -hmm. So. If the safety uh, proves to be fine and no issues, I guess that would be a breakthrough in the field where you have a biannual uh, injection therapy with uh, surgical invention at this point. And uh, in future, I think with, uh, with better delivery system, we will be 
able to avoid the surgical part and we will be able to de deliver drug. Some of the uh, advancements in the hydrogel field where you don't need to have the, uh, the implant, but you have a biodegradable hydrogel system injecting into the vitreous that may be able to deliver drug for up to six months or longer. Uh, that would be uh, the solution where we, you don't need to worry about the, the surgical implants. One, th one thing I was just going to mention that uh, people, this audience may not be aware of is that, that the, the, um, the half-life in the vitreous, the clearance from the vitreous is associated with, with the hydrodynamic radius of a, of a molecule. So the larger the molecule, I think this was mentioned, the, the longer it takes for it to leave the, leave the eye. So this is the strategy that was mentioned, that you can make the molecule larger without reducing its activity, hopefully, and keep keep that uh, in place uh, in a longer period of time. Yeah, that's that's one of the primary strategies. I think, uh, so we talk about, you know, you make it bigger or you get it stuck. So you can also try and bind it to things that are in the ocular environment. And that's something that um, I know has been tried clinically. And I think that, um, I think that uh, there, you know, I, I believe that it was halted in phase one or phase two because it was, um, because of some safety concerns. But I think it's a really interesting idea. Can we, you know, create a therapeutic that actually binds to something else in that environment and just stick, sticks around longer? Um, cell penetrating peptides. I think so. Those have, I've, I've heard talked about mostly in the context of topical, but uh, more recently I've been hearing that um, be applied to sort of the the gene therapy and, and um, modulation of expression area. Um, can we use cell penetrating peptides to get? either AAV or, or something else into the retina better from either subretinal injections or ITV, um, intravitreal injections. Um, and I think that is interesting. I am not enamored with topical myself, but um, I think it is interesting how some of the um, you know, technology and approaches that we started looking at in that space are now sort of being applied elsewhere within the same organ. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how that pans out. <laughs> Any other thoughts since you broached, you know, nucleic acid delivery, gene therapy, um, you know, any other thoughts from the panelists on what the future is likely to look like there? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, currently, gene therapy is administered through subretinal injection. I don't know if that's on here. I can't, can't tell. But, but basically, this is a very specialized procedure. Talk about intravitreal injection being, you know, taking some steady hands. You need a real steady hand to inject uh, uh, subretinally. So basically, they go in with a needle at the back of the eye, and then they go just underneath the retina, and then they inject it. So uh, obviously, you have to be careful not to poke too far, but if you don't get it in far enough, then you squirt it out into the vitreous. So um, ideally, it would be good just to inject it in the vitreous and use some either uh, cell-penetrating peptides or, or some other mechanism to, to transport the AAVs into, into, the, into, the, into the retina and then subsequently into the, into the cells to deliver the gene. But uh, um, I think we're still a little ways off from that, as I understand. Yeah. yeah. And if I may add, uh, gene therapy, uh, we have two routes, uh, two two key ways to deliver it, whether it is with AAV or some sort of virus delivery or non-viral gene therapy. So there are both ways. Uh, 
that uh, number of researchers have tried delivering drug to the back of the eye. And it, within those two modalities, uh, there are various ways to approach what disease we are talking about. If it is inherited retinal uh, genetic deficient disease, then you, have, uh, uh, you, you can deliver gene that is functional and that would produce the thera therapeutic protein which would uh, be helpful. And the second one is delivering therapeutic protein via gene therapy, where you can produce uh, your drug molecule, which is anti-VEGF right now, that is standard of care. So it is a biofactory approach, where you are supplementing uh, the cells in the eye with uh, information, and that cell will then make drug inside the body. So these are... Uh, really broad subjects in that sense. And uh, there are two platforms, as I mentioned. Within viral gene therapy, there are a number of serotypes that people have tried that has special tropism for particular cell types, uh, as opposed to just ubiquitous uh, cell delivery. And uh, non-viral, there are a number of technologies out there, especially in nanoparticle delivery systems and different types of uh, nanoparticle delivery systems that can take larger gene uh, limitations of the, the traditional AAV-based, uh, virus-based uh, therapy is that it cannot carry a gene uh, more than certain size. Uh, for the AAV, which is most commonly used, and there is FDA-approved product now, that takes up to 5 kilobase DNA. Uh, uh, but some of the inherited retinal diseases, such as Stargardt disease or Usher syndrome, they, the gene is larger than 5 kilobase, and uh, uh, there you have to try either a, another virus, which is more immunogenic in nature, or you have to rely on non-viral therapy. So there, there is a lot happening in the gene therapy space, and uh, uh, supracoroidally, at least, I know uh, uh, Jim already mentioned about how difficult subretinal uh, injection is. Uh, with supracoroidal delivery, at clear side, we have tried... Uh, both delivery systems, viral delivery and non-viral delivery. And we have some preliminary data suggesting that both platforms work in preclinical species, tried rabbits and non-human primate uh, studies. So it has potential, I believe, uh, one of the key advantage going supracoroidally with gene therapy is that, of course, you avoid any surgical risk that comes with uh, subretinal injection, but also, the access to access of care to the patient. I think subretinal injection, currently the approved product, they have seven centers uh, uh, in the country and you have, to, you have to go there and you have trained surgeons to do that. Supracoroidal is going to be an office-based procedure which, is, uh, which will reduce the cost of uh, the, the, the overall treatment and uh, it would also give larger access to the patient. So there, there are some really uh, exciting work that is happening. Clinical efficacy and safety needs to be proven. Uh, but I see great future uh, for gene therapy and supracoroidal delivery at this point. IVT would be the, the, the best solution uh, for gene therapy if we can come up with it. It has its own challenges, though. Okay, great. Are there any questions from the audience before we run out of time? We have just about a minute and a half left. Chris. Chris Rhodes from Direct Delivery Experts, thank you. Um, what would you consider to be the minimum amount of time that an implant could be administered reasonably in the back of the eye? I know the Allergan ones are two, two or three years, but that may not work for a protein. So 
Have you thought about a duration that makes sense? Do you, do you mean like what's the minimum duration that would be required for like an anti-VEGF implant? Or? Exactly, yeah. Would you go to yeah. six months or? Um, I, I, there's a lot of factors that go into that in terms of, you know, is it, would it interfere with, if it doesn't interfere with vision at all, um, sure. I think that it needs to be substantially better than the available intravitreal therapies, essentially. Right. And I, I really think that we're talking six months or longer for something like that for sure. an implant because it, it has to, there's, there's a much higher chance of it interfering with vision in some way. Um, okay. So I, I would think that it needs to be at least six months. Yeah, I agree with that. At least six months, I okay. would think you would have. It's, it's, I mean, you're talking about a, a uh, a large molecule delivery or a yeah. small molecule. Small molecule is, is, has more challenges because you inject a small molecule into the vitreous and it goes away pretty quickly. But yeah, I would say I would agree with the six months. That's better than two years. I think we have yeah. one more question. Uh, we've just got that's a few minimum. seconds left. That's minimum. Though. All right, the analogy was brought up about the Panama Canal being built to produce a, a system of bypass, but I think that humankind has changed the global climate which is now the second Atlantic to Pacific route via the Arctic Ocean, which is open and has been navigated by several commercial tankers. So the question relationship the is, that could we think about a more systemic solution here rather than just focusing on one direct delivery, that is to actually perturb the local environment enough, analogous to global climate change, to produce a new route to delivery? And that is not to make the condition worse, but to, in fact, just change the local environment to make it more permissive to therapeutics. And the analogy would be maybe something akin to what Isabel talked about with ultrasound, where you actually jostle or physically or chemically perturb the environment to allow a different route of delivery. Now, I know iodophoresis has been inferred and not, and not discussed, but is there something where <clears throat> you could go to the back of the eye via systemic delivery, where you actually open the back of the eye for systemic delivery via the optic nerve or the, the vascular route, instead of always focusing on how we can get there locally through the front of the eye? And I know that somebody had mentioned that vascular delivery has not worked to date, but is there a way of perturbing that system to make it more appealing? Yeah, I think uh, actually the, I believe the, the uh, bubbles have been, and ultrasound have been looked at for ocular delivery. So um, that, uh, that is still probably potential. Uh, but it's, it's a good point. I mean, you could uh, to deliver drug to the, to the back of the eye, you, you know, a systemic route is not a bad way to go. The, we talked about the target. You mentioned the retina as a target. There is a little bit of debate there, as you yeah. know. Yeah. Some people think that maybe the choroid is the target as well. If that is the case, then you could uh, have a better chance of delivering systemically. And with that, I think we're out of time and we've got to wrap up. So, you know, I think what you heard today is, you know, a lot of challenges still to be overcome in the ocular space. We need more innovation, so that's a call out to all of you to continue to, you know, help bring that innovation. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.